0: Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience.
1: Good morning. It's Friday, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio.
2: Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week, we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields.
1: We do our best to stay away from politics. Instead, we concentrate on research, on facts, and on the expertise of our guests to help us to arrive at a well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrated policy solutions to the shared challenges we face in society.
2: Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects, from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward, I'm Steve
1: Poskanzer, and I'm Joe Maravich. Today, Steve and I are going to discuss wills, trusts, and estate law on the program. Joining us for our discussion in studio is attorney Eric Brever. Mr. Brever is the managing partner of the Warrenson Goggins Law Firm in New Prague, Minnesota, fo- focusing primarily on business law and estate planning. Mr. Brever earned his Bachelor of Arts degree magna cum laude from Saint John's University and his Juris Doctor degree cum laude from the University of Minnesota Law School. He has been named a rising star super lawyer four times for the years 2015 through 2019.
2: In addition to practicing law, Mr. Brever is an adjunct professor at St. Cloud State University and Southwest Minnesota State University, teaching courses in sports law, sports marketing, sports facilities management, and technology use for coaches and athletic departments. Mr. Breffer has also taught tax law practice at the University of Minnesota Law School. When Eric's not practicing or teaching law, he serves as the assistant coach of the New Prague High School's hockey and football programs and chairs the 32-team Twin Cities High School Football District of the Minnesota State High School League. Given that his serious legal credentials are matched by equally impressive athletic feats, listeners will surely not be surprised to learn that he was inducted into the St. Anthony Village High School Hall of Fame in 2015.
1: Attorney and Professor Eric Brever, welcome to Public
2: Policy This Week.
0: Thank you both for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah, Eric, it's great to have you back for your second appearance with us. Let's get into our interview In preparing for our show today, I read that between 60 and 70% of Americans do not have a will. That's hard to believe because I would argue that it is one of the most important documents any of us will write during our lifetime, especially if we have children. Eric, let's start with some basics. What is a will, and why is having a will so important?
0: Well, great questions itself. And, and at a base level, a will is, is simply a set of instructions, a, a list per se, of, of things that we want to have happen to us and for us, and really to our estates after we'd pass away. Okay? You know, background information here, you're not required necessarily to have a will. Okay? There's no law in the books that says you have to have a will. We'll talk about that probably in a little bit. Uh, but, but at a base level, we're not required to have a will. But what a will says is, you know, if if people want to know what want, what I want to have happen to my stuff when I pass, well, here it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is it so important? Well, that way your heirs, after you pass away, your next of kin, know, hey, this is, this is what I want to have happen for me. So they're not questioning things. Do you want to do something else with it? It creates a, a very clear and consistent message of this is where my things are supposed to go.
1: What happens if you don't have a will?
0: Well, good question there again. Um, and, and this actually happened to some guy up in Chanhassen. I'm sure we'll talk about also this this guy up in Chanhassen who had millions of dollars and 30 Grammy winning albums, being <laughs> Prince, yeah. of course. He died without a will. Um, you know, there's a set of laws in every state's books uh, that details out what happens without a will. And in this case, the legislature presumes you would have wanted your assets to go as follows. Generally, if you if you die and you're married, it goes to your spouse. Mm-hmm. If your spouse predeceases you or or you don't have a spouse it goes to your kids equally if your kids don't survive you to your grandkids okay and basically it kind of goes to your spouse and each other and then to your descendants if you can't go down that line it pops up to your parents if they've survived you and then to their descendants and then to your grandparents and their descendants and the like um, until the state kind of steps in and says, well, we can't find somebody who's related to you. We'll, we'll hold on to it until we figure out who is related to you. But at a base level, you know, that's basically what happens is, is it goes to your spouse first and then to your kids. The Prince situation is a little interesting because he, didn't, he wasn't married and had no kids, um, and no grandkids apparently. And, and then it popped up to his parents, but both his parents had predeceased him, so his brothers and sisters ended up inheriting the entire estate itself. Mm-hmm. All the hubbub we heard about the prince estate was, was particularly fun because people came out of the woodwork swearing that they were prince's kid or prince's sibling, mm-hmm. um, which would have had you know, drastic mm-hmm. differences based on where the assets would have gone if, if they were true. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, none of those were true, and, and it made things, from a distribution perspective, much simpler and clearer. So, the law basically sets
2: forth default provisions if you don 't have a will, but if you care about what happens to one 's assets or the future, you really need to have one
0: yeah, correct and, and again, in, in many cases uh, that what we the law says is is Pretty much in line with what we might want. But when we have, you know, say young children, for example, we may not want to just have them be a, a direct recipient of our assets. We may want to have something in place to protect them, something like a trust contained in a will that would hold assets until a more suitable age. You know, it's generally a bad idea to give an 18 year old a big check. Because that's what happens if we don't have a will, you know, on their 18th birthday, the child becomes a legal adult and they take that check and they're on the first, you know, plane the Mazatlan type thing. <laughs> so. so
2: in light of what you've just explained, why do you think so many people still don't
0: have wills? it's a tough discussion. I mean, really we're, we're thinking about our demise and, you know, particularly when you have young kids, that's the last thing on my mind. I mean, I have to be here for my kids. I'm going to be here for my kids. Uh, you know, I, am not thinking about my own departure from this earth. I'm, I'm more concerned about trying to raise them and put them in a good position going forward. As we get older, it, it, we kind of uh, try pretending it doesn't exist, right? That, you know, we don't have to worry about it because it's still far off in the future. Um, but, you know, the idea here is you can never be too ready for it. And, and particularly with young children, probably the best way to protect them is to have that will in place so that there is a clear and consistent message what we should do with our stuff. And particularly for younger children, perhaps having that trust in that will so that a kid isn't buying the, the, the truck that they don't really need on their 18th birthday or going to that Mazatlan <laughs> trip that they really don't want to do. So your instinct is then it's more it's such an uncomfortable or
2: daunting topic to take up thinking of one's own mortality and a little more of that and less of the I never got around to it or it's just something that slipped my mind.
0: it's probably a combination of both to some degree. I think the, the major driving factor is I don't need one because I'm not going to die anytime soon. You know, when I'm Famous old, and Famous last words. Right, right. right. You, know, um, you know, and as a result of it, when you're talking about uncomfortable topics, you kind of try putting it off. And that's where the procrastination, I think, probably comes in more than, more than other situations. Um, but it's certainly something that, you know, as we're talking about here today, it's important to consider as to whether we need one or not at, at this time. That sounds right.
2: You know, in the state of Minnesota, like you just said, individuals are not required by law to have a will. Um, There's a system set up if you don't. But if somebody wants to prepare an effective will, what are the absolute most basic requirements that a document needs to have to be legally binding to constitute an effective will?
0: Well, the lawyer is going to tell you a couple of things with it. and, And what the law will require, most importantly, is that the will needs to be witnessed by two disinterested persons. Okay, well, what does that mean? That means the, the two witnesses must be uh, in place to, to watch you uh, sign the will to, to evidence that you are over the age of 18, of sound mind and body, and under no undue influence. You're not under duress in signing this will. Nobody's forcing you to sign this in this particular way. Mm-hmm. So, so the law of wills, and, and just background to this, the law of wills is about a thousand years old, and I'm not, not trying to exaggerate that in any fashion. The law of wills really took place under British law when William the Conqueror sailed over from England. Because the king of England essentially said, I'm the law now, or we're going to create a brand new system of laws. And all of our laws today have come from that. Well, as part of that, that particular event occurring, the law of, of real estate took place, and the law of real estate is heavily impacted by you know, where, where uh, the firstborn sons back in the day was to inherit from their fathers. So, so probate law was part and parcel, pardon the pun, uh, with that occurring at that particular time. Um, so a whole body of laws evolved over a thousand years. And one of those was, we want to make sure the person signing the will was doing so independently and had the right mindset of doing it. So as bare particulars are, it needs to be in writing. It needs to be a wet signature currently, and it has to have uh, two witnesses to the will itself. When you say a wet signature, you mean literally in ink on a page? Pen on paper, right. You know, there's no electronically signing a will, at least right now in the state of Minnesota. Now, again, we've had a thousand years of body of law as to what that looks like. Uh, Now, when COVID happened, uh, obviously, over the last couple of years, there's been some movements to make it uh, possible to have an electronic will. Um, But again, you're overruling a thousand years worth of a body of law. So we don't just do that quickly. We have to do that very carefully to make sure that all these particulars and protections that have evolved over that time period um, can be thought through and made sure that we're not going to lose anything in the process. So wet signature
2: on paper two disinterested witnesses correct that's the bare minimum that's really simple okay in theory you could do it on crayon on a piece of paper but obviously people don't want to do that and why might it be obviously a smart and thoughtful thing to do not to be trying to rip a page out of your notebook and Create your will.
0: Yeah, and, and that's kind of the end, end all, be all with this. And, and you know, a couple of things on this point. One, you know, Minnesota doesn't recognize holographic wills, and holographic will is a will that I just write by myself; doesn't have witnesses to it. Okay. Minnesota says we don't believe that that's going to be an appropriate will. We want to have certain formalities that, that take place here. And the base level reason behind that is because um, we the witness to this will, the prime witness, the person that can testify that this is indeed my wishes can't obviously testify because they're generally six feet underground at that point. Mm. So so it's really important that we... we see wills as having this higher level of respect, this higher level of, of of prestige when we put them together because we want to make sure that after that person passes away, there's gonna be no questions as to what they really wanted. Okay? So so we treat it with a level of, of respect and professionalism to ensure that everybody knows that this was our indeed our intent. Because we can talk after the person is gone about what went into the will the process, but we can't talk about what their rationales are because they're not here to talk about it. And to figure out
2: and make sure that one's intent is carried out, you really need a lawyer to do this, don't you, if you're being prudent and thoughtful?
0: Well, it's recommended. You know, and the lawyer will obviously recommend that itself. And, and you know, there's nothing in the law that says you, you need an attorney to do it. Um, there's nothing in the law that says you have to have one. But it's a really good idea because, again, when you look at why you're constructing this will, it's for the benefit of everybody else around you. And you want to make it as simple as possible when you're not here for those people. So, so to ensure that there's no question marks that go into it, that's what the attorneys are trained to do when putting together a will is to avoid those questions and avoid those troublesome spots. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in a
2: moment, but there are clearly, unlike in the days of William the Conqueror, okay, when the English common law was transplanted to the you know, 13 colonies, there are tax consequences. There are regulatory regimes that didn't exist back in 1066 that do exist now, and to navigate those things, wouldn't most people want
0: the assurance or at least the expertise of a lawyer to help? Oh, for sure. And, and that's really, the, that's really what, what a lawyer is selling here. It's not just necessarily the words on the paper. It's the expertise that goes into it. You know, there's a number of systems out there, the legal Zoom, so to speak, that you can go online and quote-unquote draft your own will. And I take maybe perhaps a different position than a lot of other attorneys to them. I don't think they're the worst things in the world. But by the same point, when you when you sign up for one of these things and, and print it off, do you know what you're actually purchasing? Do you know what you're getting? Because they can't guarantee that they've reviewed your estate with the... the potential tax consequences, with potential um, consequences among your family situation that will avoid problems that occur with it. In some cases, they actually can cause more problems than was intended because they're not looking at the overall picture. They're just an algorithm that takes words that are prompts that they provide you in the computer system, plugs them into a paper and says, okay, print it off and off you go.
2: Yeah. You know, to me, it always feels a little bit like the difference between, you know, buying a suit off the rack and trying to, if you can... Go to a tailor
0: who makes alterations to have it actually fit your needs and your circumstances. Absolutely, and that's, that's really what the value that a lawyer provides in that circumstance is, is that expertise, the knowledge, the tailoring of the suit to the particular person, the tailoring of the will to the particular need.
1: Eric, at what age or point in life should, be, should people be thinking about writing up a will? I mean, do young children or teenagers need a will? Should both spouses have a
0: will? Yeah. And, you know, the the typical lawyer answer to any question you're going to ask is, it depends. So you'll be hearing that <laughs> a lot from me t- today itself. At mm-hmm. a base level, you know, I would say some certainties are, you know, as you get older, it becomes more and more important because you want certain levels of thought behind what you're doing. And, and we'll talk about some alternatives, I'm sure, here in, in a little bit. But um, you know when you start having children, it becomes an important aspect in, in many ways because you want to provide for those kids in case you're not there to do so, particularly in the form of potentially a trust that would hold assets until a more suitable age for them, or put some strings attached um, to the gifts that you might give them as part of your estate itself. You know, for, for a teenager to have a will, you might want them to have a will. If, for example, you, your family is, is very well off, if you're very if you're fortunate to have a lot of assets, the last thing you might want to have happen is assets that are already in center daughter's name uh, because of by reason of their passing because they're not married and have no kids and if they have no will it pops back up to mom and dad well we're trying to to get assets out of mom and dad's name not you know put them back into their name so in those situations maybe we would do a will for somebody who is is particularly young but anybody under the age of 18 is not deemed a legal adult they're not capable necessarily of signing an asset a document like this anyway so we generally wouldn't have a will for them because they're not deemed capable of of understanding what goes into those things yet but certainly in those cases where they are well to do we'd look at an 18 year old saying we're going to do one quickly just so it doesn't flow back up to mom and dad Mm -hmm. but instead we go to siblings potentially you're listening to public policy
2: this week at kymn radio am 1080 and fm 95.1 and we're talking with attorney eric brever Eric, what legal safeguards would you advise someone to have in place in case one becomes incapacitated, for example, by reason of an accident or a medical issue, and therefore, because of that, cannot make or could not communicate medical decisions for yourself? What what do you need to have in place?
0: Yeah, and, and this good segue here. I mean, we talk about wills, and wills are great uh, documents to take place and, and, and really account for our stuff after we'd pass away. But you know, every will you've ever seen talks about it being the last will and testament. And the first line of every will will talk about being a document that revokes all prior wills made before me. What that means is that every new will I make revokes all the, all the previous ones. But when I pass away, obviously, I can't make a new one because I'm dead, right? So, so wills really only technically take account into things after I pass away. Prior to my passing, will has nothing to do. It It's not actually in existence yet until after I die. Okay. So, so in that process, we use a couple of documents or lawyers uh, generally recommend a couple of documents. One is what's called a power of attorney document. The other is called a health care directive. A power of attorney is a document that gives somebody else the ability to act on your behalf for legal and financial purposes. Okay. Minnesota has a very cool form called a short form power of attorney. Uh, The the part one talks about, you know, who you are and who, who you'd want to serve in that role. But part two talks about what powers we're actually granting them and they include real estate authorities and banking transactions and business transactions, trust transactions. There's just a whole checklist of it, and the bottom is is all a blanket power of attorney document that gives you the ability of exercising all those authorities. That's what we usually fill out in the estate planning context. Uh, But the idea there is that for a married couple, you may appoint your spouse to be your attorney, in fact, uh, under that power of attorney document, to serve and, and provide that protection for you. Um, So that's the power of attorney document. That's really legal and financial purposes. Let me ask a couple of questions about the power of attorney.
2: Obviously, these could be constructed, they could be revocable or irrevocable. Um, Do you want to talk about what that difference might mean? And how would one potentially limit the scope of a power of attorney so that it would only be exercised when you yourself are not capable of making the Decision.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really difficult question itself and, and from a practical perspective. And, and in the first case, you know, all of these, these power of attorney actions, we, we deal with them as being durable powers of attorney. What that means is they are effective when we become incapacitated. Okay, But we have background here in, in just thinking about what a power of attorney does. They came into being with the realization that it can't be in two places at the same time. So if I have to be in Minneapolis at 11 o'clock in the morning and in St. Paul at 11 o'clock in the morning, I obviously can't be in both of those places. So I might go to Minneapolis and send somebody with my power of attorney to St. Paul. That person could do anything I could have done for legal and financial purposes if I was there myself. Okay. So that's the idea behind it. But when I'm incapacitated, you know, it it becomes a different issue because I can't physically be in a hospital bed in a coma and at the bank because physically that's not possible. So, so that's where this document comes really valuable to us. Okay. Now, all powers of attorney are generally documents that you can revoke. So you assign it, it becomes, you know, you have the ability to, to, to appoint that person. They can act until you revoke it. Um, and you can revoke it at any time, as long as you are competent and capable. Okay. Um, but the, the key note about the power of attorney document, it, it really is not a, uh, has nothing to do with our capacity has everything to do with the fact that can't be in two places at the same time. So for that reason, you want to be careful with who you name is in that role, because the moment you sign it, that person, in theory, could run to the bank for you and take an asset from you, okay? So that could be a little scary and be a little cautious about who you appoint in that role, okay? Of course, we want it in those situations when we're incapacitated, because that person can act when we can't physically do so. But there's no, no prohibition on that necessarily. But that's why we typically have spouses in that role, first and foremost, because we're in that spot. Well, our spouse can act for us. We want our spouse to act for us and we're accountable to each other at home generally anyway. Um, but the real value, in my opinion, is the successor role. That way, if my spouse and I are, are in a car accident, one of us, dead, one of us is dead, the other's in a coma, who can then pay our bills? Well, that successor attorney, in fact, that we name in our power of attorney is able to act in that, that role.
2: Let's talk a little bit about the health care directive, or sometimes I've heard people refer to these as living wills um, and why that might be a document that someone would want to execute as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this is as important, if not more important than the the, the power of attorney document. This is a, a document that refers specifically to a medical decision-making authority. Okay, And by background here, we have that constitutional right to determine what treatments we want and don't want for our health care. Okay? A doctor can't force a needle to, into our arm. you know. A, a doctor, A doctor can quarantine us. They can put us into a room so we're not infecting others, but they can't stick a needle into our arm without our consent, generally. Okay? And, and as long as we have capacity and competency, the doctor will turn to us and say, is this a treatment you want or don't want? Mm-hmm. If I want it, I say yes. If I don't want it, I say no. And that generally happens in the real world. when The doctor sits down with us, has a conversation, here's the pros, here's the cons, and me having capacity says, I'd like this and I don't like this. Okay? Uh, and, you know, in the real world, that means the power of attorney, or the, excuse me, the health directive has no real effect because I'm having this conversation in real time with my physician. It doesn't matter what my healthcare directive says. Okay. But if I'm in a situation where I'm incapacitated, the doctor doesn't know what treatments I want or don't want. That's where this healthcare directive, this living will comes into being because we need somebody to be able to say, yes, do this, but not this because this is what this person wants. Okay. So the Minnesota version of this document generally has, uh, has two parts to it. The first appoints the agent who the doctor is supposed to talk to. This is who the doctors talk to when I can't talk for myself. So talk to my spouse, talk to my kids, whatever that situation might be. Uh, You know, if you do nothing else as part of this document, I always recommend doing that part because that empowers the agent to speak for you. Okay. The second part of the document is probably the hardest document of them all to fill out because that's providing guidance to those persons about which treatments you may want or don't want with regard to your health care if you're in those conditions. And when you just think about that on balance for a moment, that's hard because you're sitting there saying, well, if I'm in these circumstances, it's okay to let me go if, Mm -hmm. or maybe it's never okay to let me go. But that guidance is what you're supposed to kind of provide to that person so they can make informed decisions about your health care in those spots.
2: Makes sense. So really, it sounds like a planful, thoughtful individual ought to have almost a troika of documents, a will, a health care directive, and even a power of attorney as well.
0: Yeah, in most normal circumstances, that's kind of the, the estate planning package that we'd provide and most attorneys will provide. It would be that, that will for post-death planning and the power of attorney and health care directive to ensure that while you're still alive, you have somebody in place to handle things if you can't do so for yourself.
1: Eric, if you would, can we demystify some estate planning vocabulary terms with you? What's a personal representative and what's an executor? What does a fiduciary mean? Sure. And then lastly, what does probate
0: mean? Yeah, great great questions, all of them. You know, the personal representative, I'll start with the personal representative and the executor role. You know, the executor, and I'm going to start with that because for, for about 900-some years, that was what the role of that running the, the administration was in charge of. The, the executor of the will is somebody who sees to the, the will itself after you've passed away. They're in charge of the estate they're responsible to execute the will of the person that has passed away. Okay. Now the problem is executor is the male only term here in the queen's English, now king's English, I should say uh, executor is the male only term. Executrix is the female equivalent of that. When they enacted the uniform probate code in this country, about 30 to 40 years ago, they realized we should do away with this distinction and now named it the personal representative. Mm -hmm. The personal representative is a gender-neutral term that has the exact same duties as the executor-executrix, just having a appropriate name under the English language to provide those duties itself. It has the added benefit of using the term PR for short, so we don't have to go through this (laughs) lengthy (laughs) executor-executrix distinction every time we, we call something like this. Um, so that's the personal representative. We nominate that person in the will to be able to carry out the duties itself. Probate, uh, the next piece itself, uh, is the legal process of administering the will. Okay. So, so probate is when a a court has been provided the information about the deceased person, including proof that they are dead because we don't want to do probates of somebody who's alive. Um, so we need proof that they have passed away. Generally an application or a petition of an interested party, somebody who's interested in the estate, um, and then a copy of the will if they have one. And a court will review all these things and make a determination that this is the person's last will and testament. This is the wishes that they want to have carried out. And this is the person in charge of the estate as the personal representative today. So the probate is the legal process of running through that. 30 years ago, probate was a particularly nasty word because to do that, you had to go into a courtroom and you can't just step inside of a courtroom, raise your hand and say, I'd like to see a judge, please. You'd have to schedule a hearing and, and the lawyer would have to hold your hand through that process. Thirty years ago, Minnesota adopted the Uniform Probate Code, and we now have something called the informal probate. Informal probates are, are where the vast majority of probates done in Minnesota today. You never step inside, foot inside of a courtroom, you never see a judge, everything's handled essentially electronically or by email uh, with the court itself. It still does those same findings. But we don't have to wait for a hearing or call for a hearing. You don't have to take off work to go into a courtroom. You don't have to log in via Zoom for that. It makes it a lot more efficient. Mm-hmm. Your last question was with a, a fiduciary. A fiduciary is a person in a term of trust relationship. They're standing in a position of trust overseeing assets on behalf of somebody else. Okay? So we use fiduciary as a generic term for anybody in that position. It could encompass a power of attorney. It could encompass uh, a health care agent for us who under a health care directive, a personal representative is a fiduciary, and then a trustee is generally a fiduciary of an estate.
1: One follow-up for a clarification. Is a probate proceeding
0: required after every death? Um, no, okay. simple answer to that i one. I didn't say it depends yeah, <laughs> it does it. Depend, but in this case. And no, it, it, to your specific question, not every estate is necessarily going to be probated with the court itself. A lot of it depends on what assets are left and what needs to be disposed of. Um, there are a lot of assets that can be distributed, uh, by beneficiary status. Okay. Background as to this, I tell people that death is really a three second process under law. Okay? And what I mean by that is that law looks at death and splits it into three seconds. The first second of death is what I call the medical second. That's when a physician will say, so-and-so has passed away. Mm-hmm. Okay? And I joke with this. My wife is a physician. And when she says somebody's dead, she's right. I'm wrong. And that's the end of the story. And lawyers love to argue. As you can tell, I just love to kind of talk through these things. But when she says somebody's dead, I know my role. Shut up, Eric. I'm done. All right. So that's the first second is the medical second. The second second of death is what I call the beneficiary second. That's when any asset of yours that has a beneficiary listed will automatically be distributed to that, that beneficiary right then and there. So think of it like a life insurance policy. That's a contract with a life insurer saying that when I die, they're to give this sum of money to this named beneficiary. Okay? And that's what they do. They just need proof the person has passed away and they need some form saying this is where it's supposed to go. Okay? The third second of death is what I call the will or the probate second. Anything that's still left over after the previous two seconds falls under the purview of, of the will, if there is one, or the probate process in general. Okay? In some cases, we don't have a probate process because everything's been distributed by beneficiary, or there aren't any substantial assets to have to worry about as part of that process itself. There's not a dollar cutoff to... Well, yes and no. Again, it depends. Now right? it depend, right? <laughs> um, the Minnesota small estates affidavit is valid for uh, estates up to $75,000 in value and don't include real estate. Okay. So in a case where everything is, it tends to have say a uh, transfer on death deed, for example, for real estate, and then use uh, beneficiaries and financial accounts. Well, what's left over? Well, maybe a car or some furniture or some clothing. Well, you know, I, I Tend to think I have some nice stuff, but it ain't seventy five thousand dollars worth. I'll tell you that. So as a result, um, you know, my estate, if that were the case, I would be able to be transferred without having to go through a probate process to be able to transfer it to the next generation.
1: At the risk of taking all three of us back to a law school classroom, <laughs> can we toss a couple of estate playing hypotheticals at you? And, and for the purposes of our conversation, let's assume we're posing scenarios under Minnesota law. First hypothetical. What happens if both parents die without wills and there are surviving minor children?
0: Great question itself. Under Minnesota law, generally, uh, the court would appoint a protective order on behalf of the minor children. Okay? What that means is that the court would appoint a de facto custodianship relationship uh, for those minor children where the assets are, are to be deposited inside of a uh, FDIC-insured account until the child or children reach age 18. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so by distribution perspective, first the, the assets are, are kind of hemmed up um, and then distributed out in equal shares to the number of children that survive. That's the, the intestate rule in Minnesota. We'd have to appoint a, a, an interested party to be a, a, a personal representative in that spot. That might be an aunt or an uncle. It could also be a professional group if that's, that's the case. But that person would in, gather up all the assets, collect them all, and then deposit them into an FDIC-insured accounts in accordance with what a court's protective order might provide. But a court is a little bit limited here because when the children reach the age of 18, then they're considered legal adults, and the court essentially has to hand over those assets to them on their 18th birthday. Here's another one. What happens
2: individuals in a long-term relationship with a partner, but they're not legally married, and the individual dies intestate? What types of problems are likely to arise for the surviving partner at that point.
0: I'll say the good thing and the bad thing is I've had both these situations come up within the recent, recent past, and, mm-hmm. and they are problems, and great hypotheticals here to work with. In a situation where you've got a long-term relationship with a, with a, a partner, say a live-in partner potentially, um, you know that Minnesota does not recognize common-law marriage in Minnesota. Other states might, but Minnesota does not. What that means is they're two separate people living under the same roof, mm-hmm. and, and that's it. But that imposes a lot of problems because um, the the surviving significant other, for example, is not necessarily entitled to a share of the homestead unless they're specifically in a will. If there isn't a will, then they're more or less could be screwed because it goes, the, the assets of the first to die would go to wherever their uh, intestate heirs might be. It's like they're just a roommate. Mm-hmm. They're just a roommate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a similar situation that arrived recently and you know the significant other um was kind of on the outside looking in hmm. where and this is particularly problematic where they may have uh, have cohabiting roommates again from with prior relationships or children from prior relationships hmm. and if the homestead is in one spouse's one one individual's name but not the other that could pose a real problem for the other because they may be kicked out on the streets so to speak particularly partit- ah, excuse me particularly with uh, relationships between them and their say quote-unquote, stepchildren, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. um, you know, where, where the, survive, the first uh, significant other's um, assets go to their intestate heirs, and if they don't have a fond feeling of the significant other, they can evict and sell and do what they want to do with that asset. Takes you back to the need to have a will, doesn't it? A will would simplify matters significantly because we would know
2: what their wishes would be. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1 broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Steve Poskanzer and my co-host is Joe Moravchik. We're talking today with attorney Eric Brever about wills and estate planning.
1: Let's return to our series of hypothetical scenarios for Eric. Can you leave an immediate family member, say a spouse or just one of your children out of a will? And in contrast, can you write whoever or whatever you like into will? I'm thinking here about friends, favorite organizations, or causes like a church or youth athletic group? So can you leave somebody out of that will, and then can you put whatever you like in that will?
0: Well, and the typical lawyer answer, again, is it depends. Um, <laughs> short answer on some of this stuff, you know, you can't fully omit a spouse. You know, and there aren't a lot of rules with wills with regard to who you can include, but the one thing you cannot do is fully disinherit a spouse. Okay, Minnesota has certain laws about what's called an elective share for a spouse who was, say, omitted from a will to be able to elect against it. And, and that's a whole topic for one full day if we really need to get into it as part of the, the show here. But uh, at a base level, a, a spouse, particularly if they've been married for, say, 15 years, can elect against the will to elect up to 50% of the augmented gross estate. Uh, again, term of art in, in the legal industry itself. Um, so, so you can't fully omit a spouse. Um, but by contrast, you can omit children. You're not required to include children in your will. So minor or adult. Minor or adult. Okay. You do not have to include children. And, and there's a lot of reasons why people may or may not want to do that. And, you know, one of the things in law you, you learn quickly is it's, it's not my judgment that counts. It's, it's, you know, whatever your rationales, your reasons are fine. I don't I'm not going to impose my judgment on on somebody who wants to may may do that. But I've had situations where families look and say they have a a disabled child and they think twice about necessarily want to include the disabled child with um, a gift under their will because they don't want it to to kick them off, say, governmental assistance Mm. or, or just simply be used entirely in place of governmental assistance. Now, lawyers have some other tricks to handle those things, um, but at a bare minimum, there are some families that just say, we just don't want to get into it. we want to keep it simple and not include them. Or they'll give it to, say, oldest child who will use some of their share for uh, you know, such other siblings they might have. Um, so in that case, you may have situations where one sibling gets more than another sibling as a result of those things. Um, so, so there's no rules with regard to that. As far as who you can include in your will, you're generally given total reign to give it to anybody you'd like to, uh, provided it's not be used for, say, illegal causes. So, you know, contracts out on, uh, on, say, you know, people's lives are generally not going to be allowed by a court. But, but short of that, you know, charitable causes, no problem at all. You're, no, you're not required to give into a charitable cause, but if you desire to give to a charitable cause, you're, you're generally allowed to do so. I've got to ask, how about providing for your pets? In your will. Great question there. Minnesota actually has a, a, a specific statute on what's called a pet trust. So you can include uh, pets as part of your estate plan, and you can give pets money to be able to provide for them for the rest of their lives. Okay, Presumably
2: a, with appointing a personal representative for the pet. Yeah, system.
0: essentially a trustee for the pet itself. Now, the problem here is that in normal trusts, you know, if I was to give money to, to the two of you, for example, you are know, there to be able to make sure that that money gets paid out. Okay? And I have yet to see a situation where, where FIDO was able to bring a lawsuit saying that I'm entitled <laughs> to a little more money here. Okay? Um, so, so that's kind of the, the, the problem here is that they can't, pets can't necessarily enforce the terms of the trust accordingly. Okay. um there's a famous case up in New York State where Leona Helmsley the, this is or, where I was hoping you yes, were go. the heiress um, and she donated something like 12 million on behalf of one of her dogs <laughs> now I mean I wish I was one of her dogs if that were the case um but you know that was all the pet was supposed to live on was 12 million dollars I mean how is it going to feed its family in, in that case um, and what happened there actually was the court said 12 millions a bit much just for that dog even to live out the rest of its days so the court actually Reduced it by half and gave that extra six million to several grandchildren who otherwise were omitted from her will. Hmm. So, you know, those are situations where she made a will, she provided for it, but she gave too much. So the court was able to step in and say, well, we would have thought she would have given it to her grandchildren. If if she had said some things a little differently, perhaps that wouldn't have been the case, if that were her intentions. But because she's not here, we can't really ask her anymore. As a precedent, the notion of
2: You gave too much to person X or dog X in this case and not enough to person Y does kind of cut against the notion that done properly, done carefully, done in sound mind, that you
0: should be able to distribute one's assets as you wish. Yeah. And again, you know, this is where I'll say a lawyer adds value. Right. Where where a lawyer can kind of talk through these issues and say, well, you know, this is probably too much. Why do you need that much? Why would they need that much, particularly in a field of, say, a pet trust? Now, I mean, this is not to say or suggest that you need millions of dollars to be able to provide for a pet. By the same point, you know, you if you're going to, to include a pet trust, you do have to have sufficient income or sufficient assets to it so that it will provide for them for the rest of their particular days. Six million was enough to feed prime rib for Fido for a long time. Six million would be enough to feed prime rib to me for a long time, I think.
2: <laughs> Once a will's written, obviously, can it be amended? And if so, how do you
0: go about doing that? Yeah, you know, wills, again, as we kind of talked about previously or, or earlier here, um, you know, a will can, uh, is good only in the moment when you pass away. So until you pass away, you reserve the right to revoke your will and to amend it and make changes to it accordingly. Now, for, for many, many years of those 1,000-year law that we're talking about here, uh, paper was really expensive, and very few people knew how to read or write. So making a change to the will was in the form of what's called a codicil to a will. It's another page added on to the back of the will saying, yeah, what I meant to say section two, I want to say this instead. Okay. Well, you know, fast forward now to the 21st century, we have those things called personal computers and and printers where, you know, making a change is relatively simple where we can edit inside the document, make it a clean and fresh document. Uh, So the short answer to your question is yes, we can make changes to it. Normally we do it in the form of just doing a brand new will because that way it's clean and clear and there's no questions as to what happened with it. But using a codicil is still done from time to time as well uh, as an amendment to a will.
2: And you typically say in the new and amended will that this will replaces and Correct. substitutes for anything came before.
0: First line of the will, every will I've ever seen says, I, I de- declare this to be my last will and testament, and I hereby revoke all prior wills and codicils made for me.
1: Hmm. Eric, we spoke earlier about the wisdom of having a lawyer prepare a will. What can our listeners generally expect to pay for such a service, assuming a standard and simple estate?
0: Yeah, and this is this is a hard question to answer. And yeah. again, lawyers being pinned down on question on money here, right? <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the range can vary a lot with the complexity of your particular needs and circumstances. On the low end, you can pay you know approximately seven hundred fifty dollars potentially for a full estate plan mm-hmm. for a husband and wife. You know, and that would generally encompass wills and trusts for both of you, or potentially wills for both of you, powers of attorney, health directives for both of you incorporated in that price. But, you know, if your estate's particularly complicated, you could pay up to $10,000 for, for something similar. Okay. The good thing is for most of us, it's going to be closer in the $1,000 range than the $10,000 range. Um, you know, I joke with, with a lot of my clients that I've got, you know, books on the bookshelf and they've got phenomenal tools in the toolbox for me to use for estate taxes and, and gifting and the like. But the good thing is that applies for less than 1% of the U S population. Most of us fit into a nice little box that can be handled a little bit simpler, a little more straightforward. And even if we veer off a little bit, there's some other tools that we can talk through, you know, as part of that conversation that we can use for it.
1: You're listening to Public Policy this week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. Our guest is attorney Eric Brever. A few questions about what we do with a will after we we've we've gotten it back from the attorney, or we've written it ourselves. Where should a will be stored or kept? Do you give a copy to a personal representative, and then do you have to file a will? with county records?
0: Yeah, good questions on this one. And and first off, I will say the lawyer is ethically responsible for giving you the will back after you've completed it. So once it's been executed by you, that's your document, not the lawyers. So in olden days what lawyers used to do was, was hold on to it and keep it in their lawyer trust safe and then charge you a premium to keep it there. That's not ethically allowed anymore. However, they can give you the option of doing that still. But most lawyers have kind of taken it upon themselves of saying, nope, this is your document, it's yours. Okay? You can do a couple of things with it. You know, one, and I always recommend that if you've got a safe deposit box, it's an excellent place for your will because it's in a safe spot, it's generally fire safe, it's sprinkled, and nobody's going to tamper with it because the only person that can get access to it is you. Okay. So that makes it simple and easy place to know and know where to go with it. And if you need to pull it up again, you know where it is. Okay. There's a provision under Minnesota law to get access to a safe deposit box after 30 days from the date of death of a decedent to be able to look in that box for the specific purpose of finding the will. Okay. So that way you don't even have to give anybody else the key of the safe deposit box. You can just tell them it's in my safe deposit box or not say anything at all. And we'll look there after you pass away. Okay. So that's one option to it. Uh, th- for those that don't have a safe deposit box, I tell them, keep it in a safe place at home because that way, you know where it is, you know where to find it, but it's in the safest spot as possible with the rest of your safe papers. Okay. Now, you know, unlike say real estate deeds potentially, or, or other legal documents, the original will is still very important we still have to have that original will. You know, we can't probate a copy of a will. We have to actually probate the original will. So going back to our particulars earlier with two witnesses and a wet signature, we need to produce that wet signature and the two witnesses. Even though it's dry by this point. Even though it's dry by this point, you know, and it could be 40 years old, we still have to produce that original will to be able to probate that. And again, there are proceedings, you know, for for copies if we had to, but they're more expensive and more time-consuming to be able to do those things. So we want to preserve that original will, if at all possible. So having it in a safe place or safe deposit box is the best available outcome. There is a provision under Minnesota law to allow us us to deposit a will with a county recorder for safekeeping. So in some instances, we can we can uh, uh, transmit it and file it with a county recorder. It's held confidentially by the county recorder i've done that from time to time you know in my practice itself those are generally used in situations where the the, the individual itself is concerned about various family members getting involved or potentially tampering with a will mm-hmm. either while they're still alive or after they've passed away so when you have it on file with the county recorder the only person that can touch it is you if you yeah. pull it out or after you've passed away the court upon proof that you have indeed died okay so so that sort of fixes it accordingly that uh, it's not to be tampered with in any other way shape or form the downside of this is that you know making a change to it means you have to file that change document the county recorder to show it's a newer will and revoked that older one
1: i'd like to ask you about trust and if i could in just a minute but first what does minnesota law say about estate
0: taxes Great question there, estate taxes. And we talk about the the estate tax or the death tax accordingly. We're really talking about two different systems. There's a federal system and a state system. The federal one is the one we worry about because when it hits you, it hits you very hard, about 40% of the amount over the exemption amount. The good thing here is, under federal law, you have to have more than $12.92 million individually to be subject to the federal estate tax. And of course, you get your spouse's exemption also under the federal law, so you essentially have about $26 million of exemption for federal estate tax purposes. Meaning, if you have less than $26 million, there's no federal estate tax whatsoever. Whew, yeah, good. Right. Minnesota has its own estate tax. The Minnesota estate tax rate is about 13% of the amount over the, the exemption. The Minnesota exemption is only $3 million, however. Okay? So that means every individual has a $3 million exemption. Now, in a, a married couple, you know, each spouse has a $3 million exemption. The problem, though, is that you don't want to give everything necessarily to your spouse outright. Because if you've got $5 million in your estate, you know, and I pass away, I give $5 million to my spouse. Well, she's got $5 million, only a $3 million exemption then. So we want to be a little careful about those situations. Okay. Of course, you're paying the federal rate. You're also paying the Minnesota rate. Mm-hmm. So you're paying a lot more in those circumstances. But the Minnesota one is the one most of our clients worry about because it's a little bit more achievable. Yeah. Makes sense.
1: What, what's a, what is a trust and how is that different from a will? Under what kinds of scenarios might it be advisable to create a trust?
0: Yeah. Trusts are are a device that was developed back in the Middle Ages uh, to avoid the king's death tax. So great segue to what we're just Mm -hmm. talking about here. You know, back then the the thought was the king would take a portion of the estate, um, you know, of the deceased person. So people got the bright idea of saying, hey, I got a great way to avoid this. And what we'll do is, is we'll just put all assets in a trust. And when I say trust, what I mean is think of a giant metaphorical pot. Okay, in which that can hold assets. So picture this pot in the middle of the street right here. And in that pot, I put my house and I put my financial assets and I put all my cars and my, my furniture, and my clothing, such that, you know, I don't own anything anymore. My trust owns everything. So the king can't take anything. So the king can't take anything because I don't own anything. My trust owns it all. Now, while I'm alive, sometimes I would reserve the right to, to control this trust my pot per se. We call this a living trust. I created it during my life. It's a revocable living trust. So it's no different than me for those purposes. Okay. So as a trustee, I can take assets out. I can put new assets in, I can modify it, make changes to it. Okay. So, so this was a very valid manner of of avoiding the death tax back in the middle ages, but picture the death tax now as a cost of probate in modern times. I can avoid the cost of probate because in a trust situation, if I put all my assets in trust, I don't own anything anymore. I'm dead, my assets are all in my trust, my trust has a set of instructions saying, hey, when Brever's dead, give it to his wife if she survived, if not to the kids if they've survived. Okay? So, so that's sort of the, the idea of a trust itself. Is it's, it's simply a pot that holds assets that has certain terms associated with it. It came into popularity in the Middle Ages to avoid the death taxes. We saw it in more modern times to avoid probate. Okay? The problem with living trusts nowadays is, is to, to the mechanics of actually doing that. Because to make them effective, you have to take all the assets you own and then transfer them into the trust. So think deeding your house into the trust putting your, the cars into the trust and then dealing with the insurance transfers on each one of those. What's the cost of insurance inside the trust versus outside the trust? That paperwork that goes along with it suddenly becomes quite problematic in, in the sense that we're just dealing with extra paperwork. In my estimation, we want to keep the estate planning process simple. You know, as little as possible, I don't want to think about it after I've done it. And the problem with with a living trust is, is you're always having to think about it because it's a whole nother you in the form of this pot sitting out here that's not me, individually me. The other aspect is under Minnesota law, you know, with informal probate now, it really doesn't provide you, trust doesn't provide you any benefit anymore under most circumstances to avoid the costs of probate. In, in my 20 years of practice, I, I figured that um, the cost of a probate and the cost of a trust are basically the same. The difference is the cost of a trust is on you while you're still alive, mm-hmm. whereas the cost of a probate is on your heirs after you passed away. I've also had situations where you make a, a, a mistake with your trust and you didn't, ex- you didn't put an asset inside the trust. You didn't have to probate that asset. Well, you've just doubled your cost. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's the trust itself. It's still a perfectly valid estate plan. We still do do use it from time to time. We tend to use it in in particularly weird situations where there's a need to protect assets from, or just kind of know the drill, what's supposed to happen after somebody passes away. A good example is in a situation where you've got husband and wife both have having kids from a prior relationship. We may own the house, for example, in trust so that surviving surviving significant other or significant spouse uh has a place to live while still protecting that asset for the first spouse's kids for example if that's the direction they want to go another good example of why we'd use a trust now is if you have land in different states minnesota law governs minnesota real estate and minnesota property wisconsin law does the same for wisconsin property so the worst thing in the world is having a probate in two different states because i own land in minnesota and land in wisconsin So in that circumstance, maybe what I do is have have some of my assets held in trust such that I only have to do it once versus probates in different states. You spoke earlier about
2: potential use of a trust instrument for a minor. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I remember back in law school talking about spendthrift trusts. Yes. Um, This is how you avoid the kid turning at age 18 and going out and buying four vehicles and...
0: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the typical trust for a minor would be a situation where the assets are held for their benefit for purposes of health, education, or support. We call that an ascertainable standard under law. Uh, But the idea there is that it allows the trustee to make distributions for appropriate purposes. So for a minor child, for example, you know, if they had health needs, the trustee can make a distribution from that, you know, for the child, even though they're, they're say age 14, 15, 16, or if they want to go to college, the trustee can apply those funds for the benefit for tuition and the like. Okay. The other thing that the trust would do in that circumstance is maybe hold on to those assets until a more suitable age. So for example, for from my children who are ages you know five and seven, you know, we've got trust set up such that they don't actually receive those funds outright until they are ages twenty-five and thirty, half at twenty-five, half at thirty. But the trustee can make earlier distributions for their purposes of health, education, or support. So if they want to go to a you know a good school, I'll a, say a St. John's, a St. Cloud State, Southwest State, even Carleton, St. Olaf, you know, we could probably you know pay out funds for tuition for those purposes. But if they want to go to say some other place that maybe not as educational minded, the trustee can say, I'm not going to fund those using these trust assets. Makes sense,
1: Eric. You, you just brought up. The potential for land in different states and probate. Many Minnesota families have cabins. Grandma and grandpa are getting older. There's multiple children involved, and there's grandchildren involved. What's the, the thought here about leaving the cabin to the family? Best to leave it to one member, the entire group, put it in a will, put it in a trust. The family cabin in Minnesota or Wisconsin.
0: Cabins are a fun part of estate planning from my perspective because they're oftentimes very emotional. They they entail a whole lot of memories for the family and kind of a a true identity of a family in many, many instances because, you know, so many memories are made at those cabins that they want to be able to commemorate them and pass them on to the next generation. The hard part is, you know, say you have three, four or five kids. Well, those kids tend to go in different directions. And one of them might move to California, another one to, to Illinois. And they may not use it in the same way or they have kids of their own or or, or the like. So, so you know, adding it uh, to, to that next generation is a whole different feel of, of how you want to approach those particular issues. Um, there's, a, I'll say, a cottage practice inside the estate planning industry about what to do about those things. And it boils down to a couple things you you can do from a top level. One, you could create sort of a trust to hold that for the next generation. How are the kids supposed to own this particular cabin? Okay, and a trust can provide a vehicle to doing that, a mechanism of who's going to manage it, who's going to operate it, who's going to use it from week to week and the like. Another way is to use uh, a limited liability company, an LLC, which is a a business entity, but we're not operating like a business. We're operating as a co-ownership type mechanism. Um, And that way you have sort of a democratic way of of enabling uh, the the children, say, to co-own it thereafter. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is a, a particularly complicated area because you have to deal with those situations about what if one of the kids wants out? What if they would like to just
2: cash out in those circumstances? And it's always evolving as future generations play out. So the notion of, you know, dead hand of the past trying to control what happens with property too far into the future becomes perhaps irresponsible even.
0: Exactly. And, and those are things that you, you kind of talk through. And, and, you know, when I work with my clients here, I, I try and advise them to, to encourage flexibility in their estate plan because we don't know what the future holds. So, so we really want to try and give them, you know, as much ability to uh, understand why we're doing this because, you know, there is these emotional elements and, and the, those, those memories that we make there, we want to be able to carry through. And if this is possible, if this is feasible, keep it in the family. But at the same point, it may not be practical anymore and it's okay to let go if, you know, and what that means. You know, in a perfect world, we'd be able to say, okay, we've made memories of this cabin, and, you know, we're going to sell it to a new family to, to do their own memories from it, and then we're going to take those proceeds, divide them into to our kids' perspectives, and they can buy their own cabin and do the same thing all over again. You know, that'd be the perfect world, but as we all know, world isn't perfect.
1: Another hour flies by on public policy this week. Um... Eric, we'd like to give our guests the last word on our program. What are some concluding, concluding thoughts? What did we miss in our discussion about wills and trusts, estate planning?
0: Yeah, you know, I appreciate the time here and, and working with, with all of you. you know, lawyers are, spend a lot of time thinking about these things and, and these issues itself, and, and we're trained to do so. So, you know, in, in thinking about this for yourself, we, we encourage you to, to contact, you know, an attorney to, to work through them yourself so that you can feel comfortable and confident that you're getting what you're looking for in this, this particular area. Um, So, you know, feel free to reach out to, to, you know, any attorneys here in Northfield. I I know them all. They're very good attorneys. You know, our office in New Prague as well. Um, You know, we're certainly willing to, to work with you and the like. Um, to, to assist you in finding the right solution. At a base level, you know, not everybody necessarily needs a will, but we look for the right solution for you in using some of the tools at our disposal so that you're not having to, to, to pay for something you may not need in, in that environment. And a will provides that, or attorneys provide that expertise in knowing whether it's a will or a trust or even a transfer on death deed to be able to accomplish what you're looking for. So, and Eric,
2: where can our listeners learn more about you and also the Warren and Goggins Law Firm?
0: Yeah, you can go to the web, and uh, our, our website is, is www.lawyers, L-A-W-Y-E-R-S-N-P for newprag.com. Good way of, of, of looking at us there. Um, you know, and, and certainly a Google search for lawyers in New Prague will find us too. So,
1: <laughs> it's, it's been another great and interesting conversation. We're going to wrap it up here. Eric Brever, thank you for being a part of public policy this week.
2: I'm Steve Poskanzer, and my co-host today has been Joe Morawczyk. Eric, I also want to thank you for taking time away from your busy schedule to share your knowledge and your experience with us.
0: Thank you both for having me.
2: The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080, and FM 95.1 each Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m.
1: Be sure to join us for next week's Next week's edition of Public Policy This Week, John Olson returns to discuss agricultural finance and the Farm Bill. Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from KYMNradio.net.